0: we are going to continue in our story in the story in the gospel of john and if you're just joining us if you weren't here for the first part of the gospel of john that's okay um, the gospel of john can be summarized with these words from the the end of the book um, from chapter 20 where he says these things are written so that you might believe that jesus is the son of god and that by believing you might have life in his name and it's important to know a couple things about that first that that this whole book is written so that you and I might put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so um, if you're just jumping in with us this morning, that's okay, because that is the point of this chapter and the chapters before it. And there's, there's plenty to be seen, but that is the point of this book. Um, it's important to know that's a present tense verb. And so the the present tense verb that you may believe, in other words, that you might continue to believe. See, I believe the gospel of John in particular is written for those who've been Christians for a long time and who maybe feel their, their faith is on the rocks and their faith is waning, or maybe life is getting hard or it's hard to continue to be a Christian. And the Gospel of John is written not only to those who don't already believe that they might put their faith in Christ, but it's also written for those who do believe that they might continue to believe and continue to have life and continue to be satisfied in Him. So with that being said, we're going to get in here in John 7. And the way that we're going to do this this morning is we're just going to go a little bit by little bit, and I'm going to explain it as we go. And then I'm, as, after we've had a chance to kind of walk through the passage in maybe slightly more detail than we normally would, um, then we are going to, uh, then I'll have some, some thoughts to summarize it. We'll talk about who Jesus is in this passage and how unbelief responds to who Jesus is and how belief responds. You see, this, this passage, this whole chapter is really written to, uh, I think, address this, this question of why should I believe? Why should I believe? If you're here this morning and you're a, a Christian, you, you've, you, you've expended some effort and some energy to follow through on your faith this morning. You've gotten out of bed, you you have come, you've, you've worshipped with us, you've thought about deep things, you've sung songs, you've, you've prayed with us, and it takes effort to be a Christian. And maybe if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. By the way, we love it when we have non-believers here. Uh, maybe you, you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Um, it, you're wondering, why Why should I take that step of putting my faith in Christ? Why, why should I believe, respond to Jesus with belief? And maybe if you're here this morning, you're, you have doubts in your soul. And uh, maybe if you're wrestling this morning with with matters of eternity and eternal weight and significance. And maybe you call yourself a Christian, but there's this, this thing that's lying deep at the, at the pit of your soul. And you're, you're wondering, how, why should I continue to believe? Why should I continue to put my faith in Christ? Well, this chapter is for you. So with that being said, let's jo- jump in, starting in John chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My, day, my time has come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testified about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. In these first nine verses, we have a discussion between Jesus and his brothers. And and it's about the time of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a a festival in the life of Israel. And the, the Feast of Booths was when the people of Israel celebrated Um, the fact that they come out of Exodus and come into the land. And so they would, it was this eight-day festival in Israel, and they would uh, make these tents to to celebrate and remember and reflect on God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in the wilderness. And they would build these tents in their, in their front yards and in the street and on top of their roof. And they would sleep out. They would basically go camping for a week. And one of the things that they would do in this festival is they would take water out of the brook Kidron that, was in, that flowed through Jerusalem, and they would pour it on the altar, the altar the sac- for sacrifices in Jerusalem. And they would, this was the festival. And Jesus' brothers are being a little bit snarky. And so they don't believe in him, it's pretty clear, and they want to know if he's going to go up to the festival. Why doesn't he just show himself openly? Why, if, if he's really the Messiah, if everything that he's saying about himself is true, why doesn't he show himself openly? And I have brothers, so I, I understand why Jesus is not impressed with their response. And so Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And the question is, It seems like Jesus is saying he's not going up to Jerusalem at this time, and yet Jesus does go up to Jerusalem at this time. Is Jesus being dishonest? No, Jesus is not being dishonest. Jesus is trying to communicate in verse 8 that the time of his crucifixion has not yet come. and The gospel of John is building up to the crucifixion of Christ. It's building up to the death of Christ. It's building up to the time when Jesus will be glorified on the cross. And so when Jesus says, I'm not going up, he doesn't mean that he's not going to go up to this feast in particular so much as he's not going to go up at this feast, that he's not going he's, he's to be crucified at this feast. And maybe you say, well, why is it that Jesus is saying that kind of ambiguously here in verse 8? I just answer, I mean, if you have brothers, it's pretty obvious. Brothers are being snarky. They don't deserve a full answer. <laughs> it seems, makes sense to me. Okay, let's continue. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering, some of your translations say grumbling, about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so, John gives us kind of a panorama, a background of the conversation happening in Jerusalem at this time about Jesus and the the, the Jews. That by that he probably means the Jews who are in authority in the synagogue, that they're are and in the temple, they're looking for Jesus. And the, the crowd is grumbling, they're muttering, and they're saying. Some are saying, "Well, he's a good man," and others are saying, "He's he's leading the people astray." And yet. Because they're afraid of the repercussions of being known as disciples, they don't say anything. It says this in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began learning. When he, the Jews therefore, beg, uh, began, I'm sorry, began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what happens in this portion is Jesus goes up into the temple in the middle of the feast, and he begins to teach. And the Jews, they, they marvel that Jesus, somebody who doesn't have any learning, it's never been a rabbi, that, that word learning literally means someone who's never been discipled, somebody who's never been the student of a rabbi. How, how can he teach this way if he's never studied? And Jesus answers, he says, well, I, it's not my teaching. The teaching is the one who sent me. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And he says this, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. And so one of the things that Jesus is trying to communicate here is one of the ways that you know I am who I say I am is I'm not trying to glorify myself. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. I'm not trying to say how great I am. I'm trying to glorify God. And so whether or not you like my teaching is one thing, but you must reckon with the fact that it comes from God. And then Jesus kind of turns the table a little bit and and. Presses in a little bit more deeply. He says, Moses, who got his law from God, just like Jesus gets his teaching from God, Moses gave you the law, and none of you keep it. This is not a way to win friends and influence people. He says, Why do you seek to kill me? Now the crowd says, You have a demon who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered, I just did one work, and by that he's referring to when he he healed the the man who was crippled and lame, on the Sabbath. I did one work, and and, and he said I did it on the Sabbath. It, isn't it ironic? Jesus says that Moses gives you circumcision, and you circumcise children on the Sabbath, and and yet circumcision really is meant to carry the promises of God's healing, and and it's meant to be a sign of the covenant, and and. and how is my healing that I've done that much different? That the healing that God has done, that Jesus himself did, carries the, the promises of God's ultimate healing and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The story continues in verse 25. It says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, "When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done?" So John here kind of widens the candle, uh, widens the uh, camera angle again, and he says, "Some of the people of Jerusalem were—they're beginning to vacillate and they're wondering, isn't this the man whom they're seeking to kill?" Isn't this the man who the, the Pharisees are, are seeking to put to death? And, and yet here he is speaking openly and they don't do anything to him. And then they say this. They say, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Can it be that the authorities are keyed in, that they know who he really is? Can, can it be that the authorities have an understanding about his true identity? And it seems like the crowds are on Jesus' side here. But then we read verse 27 where they dismiss him. Say, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And Jesus proclaimed, as he's teaching in the temple, he says, you know me, and you know where I come from. I think he's saying, you know where I come from. He's, he's, but he, he's, he's saying, I'm, I didn't come from my own, own accord. And, and I, what's important is not so much where I come from, but whom I come from. He said, the one who sent me, the, the Lord, God, he is true, and you don't know him. They, they think that they have Jesus figured out, and Jesus says, no, you don't really know the one who sent me. He says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one lays a hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Time for his death had not yet come. It wasn't yet time for him to die. It says, yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, the the story continues. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Again, the same word could be grumbling these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion or some of your translations say the diaspora among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. In this scene, we see that the the Pharisees, they they hear these things being said about Jesus. They hear the vacillation. They hear the questions. They hear the the reasoning back and forth. And, And so they send guards to come arrest him. And while the guards are on their way, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. That I'll be here a little longer, but then I'm going to go back to the one who sent me. He says you'll seek me, but you won't find me. And that this is like very confusing. Even though Jesus has just pretty much indicated where he's going to, he's going to go back to God. He's going to ascend on high. And the Jews are start to read. They start to speculate, say, well, where does he intend to go? Does he intend to go to the diaspora, that he can teach the, the Greeks, the Hellenes, the, the Jews that are scattered among the diaspora? said, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom, the, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so in the middle of all this scene, the, remember the guards are on their way to come arrest Jesus. Jesus stands up in the temple in the middle of what he's saying. He says, I am going to establish the new covenant. That's what these verses are saying. He's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. That's a direct quotation from our call to worship passage from Isaiah 55. It says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of flowing water. That's uh, a conglomerate. That's kind of Jesus combining a bunch of these passages from passages such as Jeremiah 2 and Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah 12 and Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 54 and Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 47. And there's all these passages just kind of combining into this one statement, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And clearly he's saying this about the spirit. You see, when, when Jesus established the new covenant, when he died on the cross for our sins and he, he died and he shed his blood, he purchased the spirit for us. As Galatians three thirteen and 14 says, that he became a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. That, that Jesus died on the cross in our place so that we might receive the blessings of the new covenant. And when Jesus says this in verse 37 through 39, he's indicating that he's about to establish the new covenant by his death. He's about to establish the new covenant by which the, the Spirit will come. And we see this continuing vacillation about Jesus among the crowd. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So we see the same crowd, the same crowd that was just wondering, and maybe some of them put their faith in him, they start to wonder again, and some are saying, well, he's the prophet who's going to come that was prophesied in Deuteronomy. And then others say, well, no, he's the Christ. He's the one who's anointed by God, the Messiah who's going to come. But then others start to wonder, is the Christ really going to come from Galilee? From up north in that hillbilly region up there? Nobody's going to come from up there. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And there was this division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him and seize him, but nobody nobody could. Meanwhile, the officers, we, we learn this story. The officers come to Jesus and, and they don't arrest him and they return to the Pharisees. It says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees said to him, Why did not you bring him? The Pharisees want to know, Why didn't Jesus do what they sent him to do? And the officers answered, Well, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the guards they say, Well, he speaks as one with this kind of unusual authority that nobody nobody ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees, you you can sense the snideness and the arrogance in this. They say, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, and notice their their name calling, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, notice in verse forty eight how they said, Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? And then Nicodemus, who was an authority and a Pharisee, and on the in the Sanhedrin, Sit up and said, well, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they reply, are you from Galilee too? and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Um, when I read this passage, um, I, I kind of picture somebody walking through this crowd and they're hearing this kind of, this cacophony of voices. They're hearing all these things going on and they're they're hearing all this. And and, and even though there's many voices they kind of are all saying the same thing there's many characters there's the brothers there's the jews there's the pharisees there's the crowds there's the soldiers and yet they're all kind of saying the same kinds of things they're all responding to who Jesus is so even though in this passage there's very few explicit statements about the identity of Jesus there's a number of things that are kind of under the surface about who Jesus is in this passage so let me give you 10 10 and I'll try to keep my count straight 1 Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully human. Notice how this passage affirms that Jesus has human brothers. We know they're human because they're snarky. True story. The Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is human. Two, Jesus is a teacher. He goes into the temple and he teaches. It's very clear that's what Jesus is mainly doing. He's not really showing himself in this. He's, he's doing what he said he's going to do. He's not really showing himself he's a teacher. Three, Jesus comes from God. Jesus comes from God. It's very clear in verses 17 down through 18, and it's clear again in, in, this, uh, in verses 28 and 29 that Jesus comes from God. He says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. This is why the author, the author, of the letter to the Hebrews calls Jesus the apostle of our confession. The word apostle just means the one who is sent. Okay? So not only is Jesus sent from God, Jesus is also going back to God. So that's number four. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus has come from God. He's been sent by God and he's going to go back to God. Which means, number five, that Jesus establishes the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That Jesus is going buy to, the, by the blood that he's going to shed, Jesus is going to purchase salvation for us. So that anyone who puts their faith in him can be forgiven of their sins. Anyone who puts their faith in him can be reconciled to God. Anyone who believes in him, who bows the knee to him, uh, Jesus will bring into the presence of the Father. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Number 6. Number 6, Jesus also sends the spirit. Jesus has Jesus has the authority to send the Holy Spirit. You understand that when Jesus establishes the new covenant with God and with us that Jesus sends the spirit. And as a strong implication there, that also means that Jesus is God. Because who can send the Spirit of God except for God Himself? Jesus sends the Spirit. Number seven, Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to die. We see a number of references to that in this passage. For example, we see that Jesus says, My time is not yet fully come. He's not talking about his time to go up to Jerusalem at this moment, but his time to go up to the cross. It's time to die on the cross for our sins. This is very clearly said in verse 39. It says, Jesus was not yet glorified. Isn't that strange? When you and I think of the word glory, we think of gold and glitter and glamour. We think of power and fame. But in the Gospel of John, when Jesus gets glory, it's when he's on the cross. And accolades and are not being put on him. Blood is flowing out of him and people are not heaping praises on him, breath is being squeezed out of him. Where Jesus gets the most glory is not in the size of his following. Where Jesus gets the most glory is not in how much people think of him. Where Jesus gets the most glory is not in all the nice things that people say when they come to him and they win an Oscar. Where Jesus gets the most glory is when he dies on the cross, cursed for you and I. Jesus is going to die. Number eight, Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. He's the one who Moses prophesied, and one day there will be a prophet who will come like me. Not only is he the prophet, but as a prophet, he testifies to the world that its works are evil. That Jesus has come to call out the world for all the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness and the following after their own desires. Jesus comes to condemn the world and to call it out and to show it where it's off so that it might turn and find salvation in him. Jesus is the prophet. Number nine, Jesus is... Number nine, Jesus is the Christ... Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one who's anointed by God. He's the one who's anointed by God, the one whom God has chosen, the one who will go and die on the cross for our sins. He's the one who has been, as the book of Acts says, he's been predestined and foreknown according to the very definite plan of God to die on the cross for our sins. He is the one whom God has appointed. Number 10, Jesus speaks with unusual authority. Jesus speaks with unusual authority. Did you notice that the, the officers, they come to arrest God, or arrest, arrest Jesus? They come to arrest him and they can't touch him. They, they come to him and they, and, and they come back and the Pharisees are like, well, why didn't, you take, why didn't you bring him to us? And they said, nobody ever spoke like this man. All of these other things that are true about Jesus, the fact that he's human, the fact that he can send the Spirit and establish the new covenant, the fact that he's going to die on the cross, none of those are accidents. None of those fall outside of his authority or his sovereignty or his plan. They all fall within the reins of who Jesus is. Jesus has unusual authority. And what we see in this passage is that there's two ways, two ways to respond to Jesus. There's the way of unbelief and the way of belief. If this is who Jesus is, and if all these things are implied about who Jesus is, that that there's different ways that, that unbelief responds to Jesus, and there's different ways that belief responds to Jesus. Now, I tried to, when I was thinking through this sermon and putting it together, I tried to get my Baptist on, and I tried to find all I words for unbelief, and I got pretty close So I got six I words for unbelief, and there's one U word. Sorry. Sorry, I know, I know. Here's the first one. This is how unbelief responds. Not everybody who's not a believer responds this way, but often people who do not believe in Jesus, this is how they respond. Number one, they're insolent. It's insolent. Notice how Jesus' brothers use mockery to make an excuse so they don't actually have to engage with the truth of who Jesus is. Notice how they're mocking him in verses three and four. It says, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed him. What is happening there? His brothers are mocking him and they're they're teasing him and they're being insolent so they don't have to deal with the truth of who Jesus is. And of course, not everyone who's not a Christian acts this way, but some do. If you've ever heard of a comedian named Bill Maher, he wrote a uh, he did this documentary called Religulous, and of course uh, he used that to mock all people of faith. The only problem was he didn't actually engage with the Christian faith. One reviewer called it relentlessly shallow. What is happening there? Well, they're 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 using humor and mockery to avoid having to reckon with the truth of who Jesus is. Number two, unbelief often underestimates, that's the U word, often underestimates the truth of who Jesus is. Do you, do you see how in verse 12 it says there is much muttering, and that word for muttering is the same word that we saw last week in chapter 6 to, to describe the grumbling that comes from unbelief. So, so, this crowd is doing the same thing here that it did in the last chapter, in chapter 6, to describe unbelief, grumbling. He's a good man. Isn't that a good thing to say about Jesus? Isn't it a good thing to say that Jesus is a good man? Well, of course it is. But he's much more than that, isn't he? Isn't Jesus more than a good teacher? Isn't Jesus more than a good man? Isn't Jesus more than somebody who does nice tricks? Isn't Jesus more than somebody who, who plays nice and gives us nice, pithy um, cliches? I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, isn't when, when the, the children are wondering about Aslan the lion, they say, isn't he good? And the beavers say, of course he's good, but that doesn't mean that he's safe. Notice here how the, the crowd's there underestimating who Jesus is they're underestimating who Jesus is number 3 so the crowds are insolent they're also they underestimate notice here how they're also insincere in other words they're disingenuous or you might even say dishonest do you notice how they say in verse 20 You have a demon who's seeking to kill you. The crowds there, they're implying that nobody's seeking to kill Jesus, even though we knew that from the first verse. And then five verses later, in verse 25, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Of course the crowds know that people are seeking to kill Jesus. They're, They're not being fully honest about what is happening. They're they're, they're saying one thing that is only maybe halfway true, so they don't have to reckon with the truth of who Jesus is. So they don't have to reckon with the truth of of the reality of who Jesus is. And then we'll also see, number four, that they use insults. So they say, you have a demon. And then again, down in verse 49, the, um, the Pharisees say, this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. You know, when you're in an argument with someone and you just lob an insult just to end the conversation? That's what's happening here. And oftentimes people do the same thing with Jesus. They will just lob an insult about him so they don't have to reckon with the truth of who he is. They'll try to to control him and tame him with a label. Jesus says, Jesus is bigger than our labels. That's number four, that they insult. Number five, Number five, they're inconsistent. They're inconsistent. Do you notice how they say, we know where this man comes from, but when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And then again down in verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, which is it? Do you know where the Christ is? Do you not know where the Christ is going to come from, or is the Christ going to come from the village of David? Which is it? And yet, oftentimes, unbelief, disbelief in Christ, lack of faith is inconsistent. Uh, my favorite one is when I'm talking to unbelievers and we're having this conversation, and you'll hear two critiques lodged right next to each other. One is You Christians just have such a high moral standard for what's right and wrong. You Christians just have such high expectations for what's high and wrong. And then in the next breath, without skipping a beat, I just don't know how you Christians can be so forgiving. I don't know how you can tell even the person on death row that they can find forgiveness in Christ. Well, which is it? Are Christians too holy? Are they too loving? Which is it? What's, where's the, the nub of the critique? And that's what's happening here. As the crowds and the Pharisees, they, they're, they're saying things that don't cohere with one another. They're not willing to make themselves be consistent. They're, they're not willing to, to sit down and think through what they actually believe. They're willing to say whatever they have to say to not deal with the truth of who Jesus is. Number six. Number six. They're also indecisive indecisive. You notice how many times in this passage there's the, the back and the forth. Well, maybe he's the Christ, maybe not. We see this in verse 12. Uh, some said he's a good man, and others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And then we see this again in verse 30. It says, um, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this one has done? And then they, they, if you go down to verse 40, when the, these people heard the word, some of them said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There's this unwillingness to be decisive, to put all the chips in with Jesus, to get off of the fence and stand with him. There's this unwillingness to, to uh, call yourself a Christian. There's, there's, there's this unwillingness to, to take a side. That's what's happening with the crowds here. They're, they're indecisive. They can't make up their mind about who Jesus is. They can't make up their mind about whether or not what he is saying is true. Indecisive. And finally, there's, unbelief is often ignorant. Unbelief is often ignorant. But what we see here is that the irony of this whole thing is, is that Jesus? they don't actually know where Jesus comes from, do they? He actually does come from Bethlehem like they think that he should, but they don't actually know that. That they're ignorant about where Jesus was actually from. And they're, they're allowing their ignorance to, not, they're, to, to shield them so they don't actually have to press in deeper to the reality of who Jesus is. Even the Pharisees, who had large portions of the Old Testament memorized, who were in charge of teaching the people the word of God, even the Pharisees who were in charge of understanding scriptures, they're ignorant too. In verse 52, they said, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. But prophets do arise from Galilee. That's just wrong. We know Jonah comes from Gath Heifer, which is in Galilee. Prophets do come from Galilee. They're they're ignorant. And on and on it goes. The people in this chapter are doing anything, they're trying out any strategy, any tactic, so they don't have to reckon with Jesus. And friends, to be an unbeliever, to not put all your chips in with Christ, to not put your faith in him, to not follow after him, requires work and work and effort to try to ignore this and to try to mock this and to try to get over this without really dealing with the truth of who Jesus is. And the question is, why would anybody go to that much effort to ignore who Jesus really is? The motivation is quite clear in verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. In my experience, most of the time what motivates people to try to run away from Christ is fear. Fear of loss. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And to embrace Jesus, to follow Jesus, to bow the knee, to come to him means loss. Very often it means putting our, sac- putting our relationships uh, on others on ice. Very often it means changing what we used to do so that we can follow him to follow Christ, to to be known as his disciple, to seek after him. Often in many countries is, is a death sentence. And in our context, many people are fearful of being estranged from their families, from their work, of being known as somebody who believes the Bible. So often... What motivates people to try out every strategy they can imagine to avoid Jesus is fear. Fear of loss. If This is how unbelief responds to Jesus and why unbelief responds the way that it does to Jesus. How about true belief? How about faith? How should faith respond? I want you to contrast all the work in this passage, the crowds and Jesus' brothers and the Pharisees and the rulers go to, to ignore and not have to deal with the truth about who Jesus is, with the simplicity of faith. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What, what, how does how does faith respond to Jesus in this passage? How does belief respond to Jesus in this passage? What does it look like to be a believer? I'm thirsty and he has water. I'm hungry and he has bread. I'm blind and he gives sight. I'm dead and he makes alive. I'm guilty and he gives righteousness. I'm shamed and he gives honor. I'm thirsty and he has water. Christian, there are Deep things in the Christian faith. It is complex at times. There's plenty of things that take a lot of wrangling to try to figure out and come to terms with, but at the core of it, there is a simple call to believe in Christ. I'm thirsty, and He gives water. The Christian faith has plenty of deep things. It is, as some have said, a a pond in which an elephant can swim, and yet it is simple enough that a toddler can walk. I am thirsty, and he has water. Why should you believe? Why should you continue to believe? Why should you embrace Christ? Because you're thirsty, and he alone can quench your thirst. He alone can satisfy your soul. He alone can give you what you are hoping for. Why should you put your faith in Christ, because no one and nobody can satisfy you the way that he can. Christians, this is how faith responds. And of course, faith knows that there is loss to embracing Christ. The crowds are not stupid for being fearful of loss. Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him pick up his cross and deny himself. And yet for all the loss, what gain, what joy, what treasure to be had in finding and following Jesus and being found by him. Because if you have everything in the world, you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. But if you have Jesus and you have nothing, you have everything. How does faith respond to Jesus? I'm thirsty and he has water because he is water. How do we apply this How do we apply this glorious passage to our lives? Let me give you six applications. Number one if you are thirsty, come and drink. Are you weary and heavy laden? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you blind? Come and drink. Come and find rest for your souls. Come and find the food that will satisfy you. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. If you've never put your faith in Jesus this morning, I promise you there is nothing, nothing which will satisfy you more than him. Of course, it means that there is loss, but in the midst of the loss, what gain? Are you thirsty this morning? Come and drink. Number two, if you have doubts this morning, if you're wrestling with the reality of who Jesus is, if you're uncertain about who he is, you need to know, A, this is a safe place for you. We're not offended that you're here. We've actually prayed that you would be here. We want people who are doubting. We want people who are wrestling. We want people who are honest about these things. If you're you're doubting this morning, you could not be in a better place. I just, I don't want you to use those doubts to give you an excuse so that you can ignore who Jesus truly is. Don't let your doubts keep you from Christ because he gives an answer to your doubt. Don't use your doubts as an excuse to justify unbelief without finding the answer first. Because you could be missing out on the tr- only thing that could really satisfy you. Number three. Don't let fear keep you from Jesus. Don't let fear keep you from Jesus. Don't let the fear of what you might lose keep you from him. It's a perfectly natural thing to be afraid of loss. To become a Christian means that we get a whole new identity, that everything is made new. And yet, don't let the fear of that keep you from Jesus. Because Jesus says that whatever anyone loses will be provided even more for him in the kingdom of heaven. Don't let fear keep you from Christ. Don't let your fear, don't let don't let your fear of losing everything keep you from finding Jesus who is the only true everything. Don't let your fear keep you from Jesus. Number 4. We ought to respond to criticism the same way that our Savior does. We ought to respond to criticism the same way our Savior does. In other words, not only in this passage is Jesus our Savior, and he is our Savior. He also gives us an example. Many people in our day and age, they want to respond to culture and and the pressures of being a Christian with confrontation or compromise. So we're going to confront, we're going to point out where everybody's at wrong and we're going to justify ourselves and we're going to show them that they're a bunch of idiots or we're going to compromise our convictions. But Jesus gives us a better way. Notice on the one hand how clear Jesus is about himself. Notice how Jesus is clear and he's willing to have the conversation. He's not running away from it. He's clear about himself. He's clear about who he is. He's clear about what scripture teaches. And yet he's also compassionate and gentle. And he offers to them the free offer of salvation. What you see in Jesus is not the attitude of Jonah, the prophet who goes outside and waits for the city to burn. What you see in Jesus is the offer, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Let us respond in the same way our Savior does. Number five. Let us be patient in the same way our Savior is. Notice how Jesus in this passage is bent on trying to follow God's plan for his life, not trying to force his own way, and not trying to assert himself. Notice how Jesus here trusts in the plan of God. Um, This past Friday, uh, Keith and I were supposed to go hiking up and up in Chick Hill, and Apple Maps led led me to the wrong place, and uh, I ended up figuring that out and trying to get turned around. And I, long story short, I know you guys all think this is great. My car ended up partway off the road and in a ditch and it was soft dirt. Uh, yes, I know I'm not I'm from, not from around here. I get it. And I was uh, trying to get out, and uh, called the tow truck, and we were waiting and waiting. And Keith and I were just talking, and we got to talking about the sermon this coming week, and. So this will be a great sermon illustration. And I said, yeah, tell me about it. One of my applications is on having patience. And Keith said, you did that to yourself. <laughs> it is true that in this passage, Jesus gives us an example of somebody who is patiently seeking to do the will of God. And he is waiting and patiently looking for open doors, offering the free gospel of salvation. Jesus is here not trying to assert his own way. He's not trying to, he's not trying to um, force his will, but he's trying to do the will of the one who sent him. And he's patient and waiting for God's plan. He's waiting for the time to be fulfilled, the time for his death to come. He's not earnest and eager to get to where he needs to be tomorrow because God has him where he needs to be today. Christians, let us have the same kind of patience. Number six. If you get discouraged and frustrated with all the loss that comes with being known as a Christian, and there is loss, nobody here would deny that. If you get weighed down, if you you feel restless and you feel exhausted and you feel that there is not one more drop that you can give, set your eyes on Christ, the author and the defender of our faith and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. When you get discouraged with all the loss that comes with being known as a Christian, just remember what gain there is at the end of the race. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your Son has come to give us water because he is water. That even though we are thirsty, even though we are hungry, even though we are tired and restless, our souls can find their rest in you. Father, I, I know in this room there are many who've experienced far more loss than I have at being a Christian, who've endured far more suffering than I have. And I thank you that in my life and in theirs, we can see that you've been so faithful to them. And there's been far more gain than there has been loss. Father, I pray for us this morning that you would satisfy our souls with your salvation. That you would confirm our faith. Father, I pray that you would lift our gaze up to your son and help us with him to run the race that is set out before us. To not lose sight of him and to not lose sight of the salvation that he gives. Because Father, even though the The race seems long from this end. It is just a short while until we are home. And so it's in the name of your son that we pray these things. Amen.